Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Wednesday, September 27th. I'm Stephen Overly. Yesterday, the Federal Trade Commission dropped its long-awaited case against Amazon. In a massive legal complaint, federal antitrust officials outlined exactly why they believe Amazon is a monopoly and how it has used its market power to kneecap its competitors. I really wanted to talk to someone who knows the agency from the inside out, so I called up former FTC Chair Bill Kovacic. Good day. He served on the commission from 2006 to 2011 and pointed out that yesterday was actually the 109th birthday of the FTC. Happy Federal Trade Commission birthday. Something Chair Lena Khan celebrated by filing one of the most consequential antitrust lawsuits in the agency's history. Sort of a big birthday present that it's giving the world. A bigger birthday present perhaps for the FTC than for Amazon. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Bill joined our conversation from a hotel room in Europe, so you'll hear a few glitches in the audio. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the limitation. I should have known that the earth would move today. But he explained why the Amazon case is a modern test for the 109-year-old FTC. And a test for Khan in particular. Listen, thank you for joining us on the Politico Tech podcast to break down this massive lawsuit that the FTC has just filed against Amazon. You know, I've seen this lawsuit billed as the federal government's most significant attack yet on big tech companies, a historic test for Amazon and the FTC, you know, sweeping, groundbreaking, landmark. You know, I've kind of heard all these terms. I mean, how would you characterize it? Uh, It's it's unmistakably important. Uh, I, I hesitate to say it's more significant in its aims and its scope than the Department of Justice pending case against Google on search and then the DOJ case that will go to trial later on, on, um, on ad serving. Uh, but by any measure, it's, uh, it's an extraordinarily important case. You can, you can argue, I think, without exaggeration, it's the most important case that the FTC has brought in its 109 year history. So it has great significance for public enforcement and it goes to the heart of the business model and decision making of one of the country's most significant enterprises, a company that has a uniquely important place to play in the distribution of goods throughout the economy. So measured by its economic importance, measured by its significance in the context of government law enforcement, uh, taken as a piece of this remarkable collection of government cases that cover Google, Meta, and now Amazon, it's an enormously important development. A big deal is, is what that uh, that all adds up to. A big deal. So shortly stated, it's a big deal. A big deal. Absolutely. Well, uh, let's talk about the case that the FTC has filed here. You know, it argues that Amazon has become a monopoly uh, really by locking sellers onto the platform in a lot of ways, by making it harder for other online retailers to sort of achieve the same size and, and the same success and scale. What was your impression when reading the FTC's argument that it outlines here? I mean, part of what the commission has done, I think, skillfully is to write a good story. Uh, the, the art of writing a good complaint in the modern era of antitrust policy is to write a good story. And it's a good story that tells the FTC's version of events, but also integrates comments and observations that come out of uh, the company's own documents. So. Notice throughout the complaint, you have sprinkled public comments that have been made by chief key executives like Jeff Bezos. You have comments that almost certainly came from 
documents, records obtained from Amazon during discovery, where the FTC story in some respects comes directly out of the voice of Amazon itself. Now, the complaint, a door-stopping 171 pages, uh, contains uh, a number of sections that have been excised. That is, they've been they've been excised for public consumption. The unredacted version will tell us more about what, what was going on, but almost certainly those redacted portions not only give us details about Amazon's market position, but contain more quotations that come from Amazon itself. But the FTC, I think, has done a good job here of telling that story. The crucial feature of the case will be the arguments that Amazon marshals uh, against it, both attacking the FTC's version of the facts, that is, as the FTC correctly interpreted what it's looking at, but also uh, to add its own view about how the behavior in question uh, arguably made the experience of users better than it would have been otherwise. That's that's the heart and soul of the debate in the courtroom. Did this behavior serve mainly to exclude rival sellers, rival platform uh, operators, current or future, or did it mainly serve the interest of users uh, who buy goods over the over the over the Amazon system? That's the heart of the debate in the case. Well, so that feeds well into my next question. You know, most of us engage with Amazon as shoppers. Right. And Amazon and supporters have said, you know, their, their size is good because it means, you know, shoppers find goods that are cheaper. They get them faster. So it did strike me in reading the case that much of the harm the FTC identifies seems to actually be harm to sellers on the platform. And the FTC would say that uh, the, 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 the immediate argument they're making is that other sellers suffered. And the restrictions on other sellers had a couple of effects. One is to make it difficult for other platforms to emerge. But an argument that the FTC ultimately is seeking to develop is that these adverse effects on sellers and other platforms ultimately operated to the disservice of consumers themselves. That is, had sellers had more options, had other online platforms had greater capacity to emerge and thrive, that the experience that users have today would have been significantly better in many ways, that there is a there is a version of events, there's an alternative path for the development in this sector that would have been better for users. Now, that's a bit of a tricky argument for the FTC. That is, if I'm talking to a body of users who presently, in many respects, are happy with what they get, they enjoy the convenience, the breadth of options. Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a different argument to say, as happy as you are now, life would have been even better. It's very hypothetical. Hypothetical. There's a there's a universe out there that would have been better. Uh, the FTC is nonetheless saying that it would have been a superior experience for you. And you'll never know what you're missing because those alternative possibilities are forestalled in the way that Amazon operates its platform. Well, I mean, the in antitrust, the traditional benchmark has been sort of consumer experience, often measured by price. But there has been a lot of debate about whether antitrust law is fit for purpose in, in kind of this modern digital era of business. I mean, the reality is that the federal laws Amazon is accused of violating here were passed in 1890 and 1914, I believe. So that's it. That's a, that's when the key architecture was put in place. 
So, I mean, is the FTC taking creative liberties here and how it is applying those laws? Uh, They're engaging in a process that I think they would say is faithful to a tradition of evolution and adaptation. The only way those older statutes can serve a vital and valuable purpose in the modern economy is that interpretations evolved. And the statutes themselves, for the most part, are cast in very broad terms. Uh, Congress had a deliberately evolutionary system in mind where judges and agencies would adapt the system. Uh, To put it in one way, it was deliberately designed to be scalable, uh, to to address new developments. So the FTC is is saying here, uh, as it is said in other instances, uh, we're faithful to that tradition. uh, And... Our application of the law reflects the expectation of Congress that we would be able to address new phenomena. Now, now we can ask still uh, in the very good question you, you, you posed is, is this fit for purpose? Is a system that operates in such a deliberate and one might say plotting way, is that a system that's well suited to deal with an economy that changes so rapidly? and in such unexpected ways. As one colleague one put, once put it, is this trying to win a Formula One race uh, riding an ostrich while the Formula One racers go, go, go sweeping by? Is that the case? Is this a, a Formula One race with uh, an ostrich uh, at the starting line or, or something? I guess I see it better than that, but uh, I don't think the government is driving state-of-the-art Formula One racers. They're driving cars that are a couple of generations behind in several respects. The system is very slow. The FTC's got a clunker. <laughs> yeah, it's vulnerable to arguments. So you're looking in the rearview mirror instead of looking ahead. Uh, it's also uh, uh, prone in, in many respects uh, to, to, to fail to have the means to take uh, account of broader developments in the economy. So it's got a perhaps a tunnel vision look at the world instead of looking at a broader array of circumstances as a footnote. That's why the European Union is investing so much effort in creating a new regulatory regime for big tech platforms called the Digital Markets Act, which identifies dominant enterprises and then applies a large collection of specific prescriptive rules that tell firms what they can and can't do, Uh, with the view being that that's better suited to to the world that, that, that comes ahead and that antitrust is too much concerned with the world that used to be. You know, given that you are a former chair of the of the FTC and obviously have studied and paid attention to antitrust law uh, much more broadly than that. But was there anything novel or surprising to you as you read through the the case and the arguments here? Uh, The the case is a a clear effort to apply a number of concepts that have appeared in the commentary about competition law in the past 20 years, uh, to do a couple of things. One is to appreciate that businesses don't simply use one technique to succeed. They use a variety of strategies. Uh, you'll see the words in the FTC's complaint intertwined, interrelated, that firms don't simply say, let's do one thing, let's just cut our prices to suppress arrival. Firms choose a collection of strategies and that the analysis of behavior has to account for this melange of different techniques that are being used to to suppress rivalry. 
Second, it's trying to incorporate a modern literature that is much more sensitive to the possibility that a variety of techniques used by large enterprises that reinforce large scale, that take advantage of the growth in the number of users and sellers, gives them a decided advantage over other companies. That in order to prosper, you have to be large and you have to have a growing body of users and of suppliers in order to provide an experience that is attractive for both. So another thing I'd say is a bit new here in this instance is this is a major effort to integrate into this case a good deal of economic learning and legal commentary that's emerged in the past 20, 30 years dealing with big tech. And the chair of the FTC is uniquely well positioned to do that because she was a major contributor to that literature. Her ascent to prominence takes place in 2017 when she writes a large manifesto dealing with Amazon and accuses antitrust law of being too timid in coming to grips with the practices that made Amazon great. So I, I was going to ask you about this because, as you said, Chair Lena Khan has talked about big tech and its market dominance and Amazon in particular since the very beginnings of her, her legal career. I'm just curious, as a former chair, what do you think is going through her mind now with this big lawsuit dropping? I would think it's faintly intoxicating to realize that six years ago, she was publishing a law student's paper, a large paper in a law journal. And today, six years later, she's in a position to set in motion with her two colleagues, a case that is trying to redress some of the concerns that she laid out in that paper. Um, to go from being the third year law student to being the chair of the Federal Trade Commission in six years is faintly improbable. Uh, I, I wonder what would have happened in her last year of school uh, if she was interviewed for different positions and the interviewer asked the typical question, well, what are you going to be doing in five years? What, what are your plans? What would have happened if she had said, well, my plan is to be the chair of the Federal Trade Commission. I think the interviewer might have said, I think we're done. Uh, <laughs> good luck to you on that delusional career path. I'd like to see the next candidate in line. Uh, that's a, that's a most improbable set of developments, yet it happened. And it didn't happen by accident. So I think that one thing that's going through her mind is, my goodness, uh, I, I got the opportunity to not simply talk about what ought to be done, but to give it a try. At the same time, I suspect there is the awareness that all chairs have of how difficult it is to cross the distance between the policy aspiration and goal and its realization in practice. Uh, coming up with a plan is one thing. Making it work is an entirely different thing. And as an academic, you learn quickly how hard the game is. Uh, the difference between watching a sporting match in the stands and being summoned to the field and saying, you play. Let's see how right. you do. Uh, I, I think she is probably aware that Though it's a huge step to launch the case, aware that it's going to take, as we were saying before, four, five, six years of dedicated effort against a, an opponent that will assemble an astonishingly capable team of lawyers and economists to oppose them. And this presses against a, a weakness in the joints of public administration is that you know inside the agency that there are only so many huge bet your agency cases you can manage effectively at one time. 
And this is certainly one of those. I mean, you know, the FTC, we should note, is not acting alone here. There were 17 states that also signed on to this complaint, um, most with Democratic attorneys general, a couple of Republicans. Um, what do you make of the level of state involvement and, and what impact does that practically have? practical effect it can have is that it makes a few more resources available to you. The fact of the state presence, I think, does give, in, a, in, a, in at, least, at least some extent, a broader indication of wide public support to that if someone steps back and says it's the crazy Federal Trade Commission running around on its own, way out of the mainstream of policy, it can say, well, what are these 17 state governments doing here then? Are they all crazy too? Uh, that is, uh, I think, I think it helps provide a signal, uh, not simply to the court, but to the larger political environment that our case is not an idiosyncratic case that only we believe in. That there is a larger body of public officials who thoughtfully decided it was worth joining. I think that's an important uh, signal too. If you're doing something bold, there is some comfort in not doing it alone. Uh, when you do it alone and it's very bold, it creates the immediate, immediate opportunity for an opponent to say, there is the single deranged official marching off on her own, doing something that's so contrary to good practice. It's very nice to be able to point to the room and say, I've got a lot of company with me. We'll be right back. The outcome of this case is is years away, you know, and I frankly have doubts that Lena Khan will still be chair by the time that this actually gets resolved. Your doubts are well warranted. Uh, chairs, uh, commissioners do not stay that long. Right. And so do we know anything at this point about where this leads and the likelihood that this is actually going to break up Amazon as, as we know it? The possibility of a breakup is uh, preserved in the complaint. Uh, it speaks about getting an injunction against the bad practices, but it invites the court to apply other necessary equitable relief as the court sees it. And that other necessary relief is identified as including structural remedies. So that is part of the possible solution set. In practice, breakups have been hard to come by in the U.S. monopolization case history. There have been some dramatic examples. The restructuring of the U.S. phone industry resulted from a case brought in 1974 against AT&T, a massive reorganization that had profound economic effects. But that's been unusual. Uh, the more common resolution where the government prevails or is likely to prevail is a settlement that focuses on behavior and conduct. And those conduct-related remedies can be very significant. Uh, they tend to be underrated, I think, in their capacity to change business behavior, especially to caution firms against being overreaching. And one hypothesis about remedies that I accept uh, is that conduct-related remedies and the fact of bringing the lawsuit instill some measure of caution in the dominant firm. Uh, the dominant firm pulls its punches a bit. Uh, does not respond as vigorously, one might say ruthlessly, as it could otherwise, and that that gives other firms some breathing room. Uh, 
to emerge in a way that they wouldn't have emerged otherwise. So breakups are unusual, somewhat hard to come by. Conduct-related controls are the more likely outcome. Uh, but my judgment, my inclination is to think that the conduct-related controls have a bigger impact than one might think. Right. We've seen that in the past with um, past cases where the, those kind of controls or even just the threats of them sometimes do, do create a bit more market competition. Well, my final question, you know, I want to take advantage of the fact that we have a former FTC chair here on the podcast. Um, as What are you watching for next out of this that our listeners should be watching for as well? I'm first watching for how long the judge decides the parties can conduct additional discovery. Uh, that is, uh, the judge in the Google case in Washington that's running now, this is the Department of Justice monopolization case against Google involving search. Uh, that case began trial three years after the filing of the complaint, three full years. In this instance, will the judge give them that amount of time uh, the, 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 the judge in the Google case had a docket crammed with uh, January 6th criminal trials, uh, trials relating, uh, relating to, the, to, the, to the attack on the Capitol. Uh, so he had a crammed docket. He was willing, I think, to give the parties more freedom to conduct discovery. As a contrast, in the Microsoft case that the Justice Department brought in 1998, the Justice Department filed its complaint in May 1998. The judge, Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson, uh, set the trial date uh, uh, initially for September, but ultimately said, you're going to trial in October, and they did. So it was basically five, six months until the trial began. He was absolutely determined to make sure that the case would be trialed dur tried during his lifetime, and that of the rest of us. So. Uh, from the date of the complaint until the final decision by the district judge was basically two years, and then one year through the Court of Appeals, it was three years before we got a Court of Appeals decision. That's pretty fast. So one thing I'm watching for is how, how the very capable uh, district judge who's handling this matter, to whom it, it appears to have been assigned, uh, judging from the docket, uh, 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 whether he will set a more expeditious schedule uh, to, to address the concern that antitrust is uh, is moving like a glacier. Uh, that is uh, that's one thing I'm looking for. Second is, um, you know, what uh, uh, we won't know this until the trial, but what evidence is Amazon going to assemble to try to tell its good guy story here? Uh, that is, we are not improperly exclusionary. The only people we are concerned with is the users. And we're giving the users a, a good experience. And to give the good user good experience to our users, of course, we have to treat our suppliers appropriately. If we didn't do that, we couldn't provide the good experience. So what arguments is Amazon going to muster? How are they going to try and prove the story that says um, the audience accounts are the people who buy our products? Those are the people who matter. Those people are getting a good experience. And the, our, some of our rivals might not be happy about that, 
We hope they're not. Our, our job is not to make them happy. It's to make users happy. How will Amazon go about trying to prove that case? Uh, the third thing uh, I would watch for is, again, the effect of this, this new regulatory measure that's taken effect in Europe that directly affects Amazon, that's designed to change a number of its business practices. How much during the pendency of this case are we going to see Amazon in certain ways change its business operations to respond to the commands that are coming out of Europe? In effect, a slow-moving remedy that will address some of the behavior that's at issue in the FTC's case. Well, a lot to watch, clearly, um, and, and maybe we'll have you back three years, uh, three months. Uh, who, who knows how long it's uh, it'll take until uh, this trial gets started. But Bill, thank you so much for being here on the Politico Tech Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the chance to do this, and I look forward to next time. That's all for today's Politico Tech. Tune in over the next couple of days for coverage of Politico's AI and Tech Summit, including my live interview with Ann Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech. And for more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow.